We read the Holy Scriptures together in Matthew 27 this morning. Matthew 27. We'll read verses 1 through 38 of the chapter. And the text for the sermon will be verses 27 through 31. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. And Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now, at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, His wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, 
I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. We read God's word that far. I call your attention to verses 27 through 31 this morning, especially those verses. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the many events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus, the issue of his kingship was one of the central issues. As we saw last Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey on what we now call Palm Sunday, He fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which Matthew pointed out, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. Jesus rode into the city of the great king as the king. But only a few days later, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, when Jesus was praying 
and bleeding, sweaty blood. And Judas Iscariot came into the garden with a band of men from the chief priests carrying swords and staves and torches. And Peter drew a sword out and swung it at one of the servants of the high priest and tried to wage war against the enemies of his king. Jesus said this to Peter, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Later that night, Jesus stood before the leaders of the Jews, and they condemned him for the claim that he is the Christ. But when the Jews brought Jesus early on Friday morning before the judgment seat of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the accusation that they brought was not that he claimed to be Christ, but that he claimed to be a king. We find that in Luke 23, verse 2. We found this man saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He claims to be a king. So when Pontius Pilate took Jesus, the question that he asked him was, Art thou a king, the king of the Jews? And according to John 18, Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So Pilate asked him again, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered him, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. When Pilate heard that testimony of Jesus, he realized that Jesus was not the kind of king that was a threat to the Roman Empire. And from that time, Pilate tried to find a way to release Jesus. He tried various things, but none of them was successful. So at last, Pilate tried this. He gave Jesus over to his soldiers to scourge him, to crown him, in a cruel and humiliating manner, and to bring him out to the Jews. And Pilate's hope was that when the Jews would see Jesus beaten and bruised and battered, it would satisfy their bloodlust. But nothing less than crucifixion would satisfy them. And that was according to the perfect plan of God himself which he had determined before time would be the way of salvation for us, his people, the way of the cross. Let's consider the mock coronation of our king. The word coronation means crowning. The mock crowning of our king. First of all, the wicked act. Secondly, the meek suffering. And finally, the glorious crown. The Roman soldiers took Jesus into the common hall in Jerusalem. 
And they gathered together the whole band, we are told. The whole cohort, which was a segment of a Roman army, which was about one-tenth of a legion. And so if that's really how many men were there, then there were hundreds of Roman soldiers gathered in the hall. And one of the soldiers took a whip in his hand, and they removed Jesus' robe, and they struck his back with that whip again and again and again, scourging him and laying his back with many stripes. And after they had done that, they proceeded to crown him king and to pour their contempt upon him, reviling him, because in their eyes, this Jesus was the most sad and pathetic excuse of a king that they had ever seen. Remember, these Roman soldiers had a certain idea of what a king was and what a king should be. They were the soldiers of Caesar who lived in Rome. And in their minds, a king was a man of great power, a man of great glory, a man of great majesty, one who sits upon a glorious golden throne and carries a golden scepter and wears a golden crown upon his head and is surrounded by legions of of soldiers who are decked out and well-trained for battle. A king should have a crown with jewels shining and glimmering. But as they looked at this Jesus, they saw a man weak and powerless, helpless, a man silent who opened not his mouth. They saw a man who had no form or comeliness, who had no power or riches. And yet, evidently, as they were told, he claimed to be a king. He claimed to have a kingdom. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so as they cast their eyes upon him, they had contempt. They disdained him. They despised him. They were filled with disgust. They took him into their common hall. They gathered their whole band of soldiers together. They stripped off his clothes and they put on him a scarlet robe. That scarlet robe was one of the common robes of the soldiers. It was of a purplish color. It was nothing special, just an old soldier's robe or coat. And they put that around his shoulders as a mock royal robe. Then they plaited a crown of thorns, we are told. Someone found branches covered with thorns. And someone twisted those branches into a circle so that it could serve as a a fake royal crown, but at the very same time, an instrument of cruel torture. And as they plaited that circle of of thorns, they lifted it up and they put it onto Jesus' head and pressed it onto his head so that it pierced his skin and caused his blood to begin to flow on the sides of his head and face. Then someone found a reed, a stick, and they shoved it into his right hand as a kind of mock or fake royal scepter. Then that great crowd of Roman soldiers gathered around Jesus in their common hall. 
bowed the knee. They all fell down before him, and they professed their fake allegiance, no doubt with great sarcasm and uproarious laughter and jeers. They pointed at him, and they all shouted out, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! But they were not satisfied to do these things, to shower this contempt and mockery and pain and abuse upon Jesus. They began to go up to him, one after another, and to spit in his face, so that the saliva of these cruel, wicked soldiers mingled together with the blood that was pouring down his face. And then someone took the reed out of his hand, and they slammed it on his head, and passed it to another soldier, who slammed it on his head, and another, and another. And with every blow of the reed, the crown of thorns was pressed into his head, and searing, sharp pain shot through his body, as he felt blow after blow of the reed. What a wicked act. What wickedness. What abuse perpetrated against the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. Because we must remember that this man of sorrows who stood in the midst of the Roman soldiers was no mere man, but he was Jehovah God himself come into human flesh. God was standing there in the common hall that day, clothed in human flesh, and now clothed with a a mockery robe and with a mockery crown of thorns. And they were beating on him, abusing him, laughing at him, scorning him, and pounding that crown of thorns into his head. What we see here is that when God came into the world, into human flesh, he came and suffered at the hands of ungodly men. And therefore, he has come to know what it feels like to suffer abuse, to suffer torment, mockery, ridicule, and physical pain. We read in Hebrews that we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it feels like through experience to be hated, to be mocked and scorned and abused and spit upon and beaten and to feel that searing pain shoot through his body from head to toe. And therefore take comfort when we experience suffering at the hands of others when we might be abused or mocked through no fault of our own or because we are Christians, then take comfort in the sufferings of our Lord. Let us come boldly onto the throne of grace, the apostle exhorts, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But we must remember something else. We must look deeper And we must see in those Roman soldiers 
the flesh and blood manifestation of Satan. And we must understand that behind those soldiers and inspiring those soldiers that day was that old serpent who tempted mankind in the Garden of Eden way back in the beginning and throughout the whole history of the Old Testament did his utmost to prevent Christ from coming who tyrannized, abused, and oppressed the people of God throughout the hundreds of years of the ages of the Old Testament, constantly looking for the birth of the Messiah and waiting to pounce on him, to destroy him, and to prevent his coming. Satan was constantly trying to stop and to destroy the line of David. And then at last, Christ was born. And Satan inspired Herod the Great to kill all the baby boys of Bethlehem, but he failed to kill the Christ. And when Jesus grew up, Satan tempted him in the wilderness three times. And the most grievous temptation of all was, if you just bow the knee to me, Satan said to him, then I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. You will be king. You will reign over all the nations of the world. There we see the issue again was the kingship of Christ. And the temptation was to become king without the way of suffering in the cross. That was Satan's temptation. But he failed. Again and again he failed. Jesus rebuffed him and said, It is written that thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And Jesus walked the path of suffering to this point. And now Satan is filled with wrath and indignation. And he inspires Pilate and the Roman soldiers to pour out his own wrath upon Christ. Those blows of the reed upon the crown of thorns on his sacred head were the blows of Satan upon Christ in his last desperate effort to destroy the Savior. He filled them with fury, and in his foolishness and pride and blindness, Satan still thought that he could defeat the king of kings and destroy the God of heaven. Satan knew this was no mere man standing here, but this is God, and in his fury against the Lord of hosts, he inspired them to abuse him. But there's something more that we must see. As we imagine in our mind the soldiers gathered together in the common hall and Jesus standing there in the midst, clothed with the scarlet robe and the crown of thorns on his head and the blood mingled with saliva dripping down his face. What we must see this morning is that those soldiers represent us. Those soldiers, together with Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews, represent the whole of the fallen human race. They represent the whole world, the whole of humanity, in our wicked, depraved state. What does mankind do? Unbelieving, ungodly mankind when God comes into the world and takes on human flesh. 
What is the natural response of the sinner when he comes face to face with the God of heaven and earth in human flesh? This is the natural response. Because we are by nature prone to hate God and our neighbor. We're not prone to love him. After the fall, we have become sinners who are prone to hate him. And so as we look at those soldiers, we must not proudly puff ourselves up in the thought that we would never have done such a thing to Jesus. That if we had been there, surely we would have taken compassion upon him. We would have tried to deliver him. We would have tried to set him free. We would have shown kindness and compassion to him. But we must remember that we would have done exactly what those soldiers did. If God was to come into the flesh, all that we are able to do is to pour upon him our hatred and contempt or mockery and scorn. Perhaps it is difficult for us to imagine that we have that in us, that kind of hatred, that kind of murderous contempt. But do we not manifest that natural inclination even in our daily lives today? We manifest the same cruel inclinations of the soldiers when we admire the people around us whom we consider to be strong and powerful and charming and attractive, the people we consider to be rich and popular and influential, we want to hang out with those people. We want to be around those people. We esteem those people. But how often do we look down in our pride upon those who are weak? Helpless, irritating, those whom we consider to be beneath us, those who are quiet, slow, feeble, uncomely. In some way or other, they're not the kind of person that we want to hang out with. They're not the kind of person that we want to be friends with. We look down upon them. We puff ourselves up and think we're better than them. And we even mock them, ridicule them. If not out loud, then in our hearts. We feel a certain disgust, a certain disdain for certain people. And that's the same exact attitude of the soldiers when they looked at Jesus. Same attitude. He's weak, pathetic. What a sad excuse for a king. And then furthermore, we show the same inclination of the soldiers when we prefer Caesar as king instead of Christ. Do we not ever prefer Caesar to Christ? We prefer Caesar whenever we value and delight more in earthly treasures than heavenly treasures. When we value and delight in earthly pleasures, earthly experiences, earthly peace and prosperity, more than the eternal riches of the kingdom of heaven. 
Then we are saying, I serve Caesar. I want a king like Caesar. I want a king who can give me riches and peace and prosperity in this life. I want a long, healthy, satisfying, prosperous, enjoyable life on this earth. And when we value that more than the kingdom of heaven, or instead of the kingdom of heaven, then we have no use for a king like Jesus. We have no use for him, no interest in him, no love for him, but rather we despise him, we disdain him, and we reject him. This morning we have to see ourselves in those soldiers, and we have to confess what the prophet said long ago in Isaiah 53, verse 3, about the coming Savior, that he would be despised and rejected of men. Which men? Just the ungodly men? No. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Not wanting to look at this sad and pathetic excuse of a king. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We want nothing to do with him. And so he was rejected. In sharp contrast to the wicked act of the soldiers is the meek suffering of Jesus. What a contrast. Let's look back at this whole scene again from the perspective of Jesus. There he stands in the common hall, surrounded by we know not how many Roman soldiers, jeering, mocking, ridiculing, beating upon him. And there he stands, silent, meek, not opening his mouth. As the soldiers stripped off his robe, he did not resist. As the whip cracked on his back and left stripe after stripe, of blood. He did not turn away. He did not pull back. He did not cry out for mercy. When they took that crown of thorns and approached him and pressed it down on his head, he did not turn away. He did not pull away. He allowed them to press it down on his head. When they reviled him, when they mocked him, when they sarcastically pledged their allegiance to him, he did not revile them in return. He did not return railing for railing, evil for evil, wickedness for wickedness. But he stood there and took it, blow after blow, word after word of mockery. In his mind and in his heart, were all the prophecies of the scriptures ringing in his mind, ringing in his ears. Psalm 22, verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. The prophetic words of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He demonstrated to them and to us a new kind of kingship. A kingship radically different from any ideal of kingship in this world. 
Anything those Roman soldiers could imagine, anything that we could imagine, a king ought to be. He flipped that on its head and showed us a different kind of kingship. A meek, quiet, humble, suffering king. Soon he would be on the cross, and above his head would be a sign saying, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Meant to be mockery against him once again, and yet it expressed the eternal truth. He is truly the King of the Jews. This is your King. Suffering, meekly, silently. And in this, he set an example for us as well and teaches us the very meaning of meekness like no other. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And in verse 21, because Christ also hath suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Jesus is an example to us. Jesus teaches us by his actions of meekness, not only that we ought never to abuse others, to mock, to ridicule, to torment, to show contempt for people whom we consider to be under our feet, But he shows us something else. That when people abuse us and mock us and show contempt for us and beat on us, we ought not to threaten them in return. We ought not to revile them in return. We ought not to rail upon them. But we must hold our tongue. Do we do that? How well do we do that? How well do we hold our tongue when someone speaks evil of us, when someone does evil to us, when someone talks about us behind our back? How well do we hold our tongue? Jesus sets an example for us. But there's more. He's not only setting an example for us, but he's redeeming and saving us through his sufferings. In sharp contrast to the sadistic and cruel acts of the soldiers upon Jesus is his willing and purposeful obedience to God. Willing and purposeful obedience. What we must remember is, again, this man is no mere man, but the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, who could have ended it in an instant, by calling forth from heaven twelve legions of angels, as he mentioned in the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine, twelve legions of angels, what they could have done to one little cohort of Roman soldiers, one-tenth of a legion of soldiers. They could have utterly obliterated them, utterly destroyed those soldiers, and cast them into hell. Jesus didn't even need to do that. He could have simply lifted up his hand and all of those soldiers would have fallen on their back in an instant, 
unable to get up again, unable to speak another word of mockery or to beat him with another blow. He did that in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came for him. Who do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Immediately they fell on their backs. He could have done that again, but he didn't. He didn't lift his hand. He didn't call forth his angels because he was willfully and purposefully obeying the will of his Father. He was taking that suffering upon himself. He was allowing himself to be scourged, allowing himself to be beaten and mocked and hated. He was allowing all of it and giving himself over to it willfully because he had another prophecy in his mind. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Whereas we hid our faces from him, esteeming him not, he hid not his face from shame and spitting. How amazing. Jesus was giving himself over to that suffering in willing, purposeful obedience because the suffering that he endured that day in the common hall at the hands of the Romans was the road to Calvary. The road to Calvary led from Bethlehem through the towns of Galilee and Judea up to Jerusalem. And that road to Calvary led through the palace of the high priest and through the judgment hall of Pilate and through the common hall of the soldiers. That path to Calvary led through this event of being crowned with a crown of thorns. It was there in the common hall that Jesus began his bleeding, his shedding of his blood. And he was not shedding his blood out of the enjoyment of doing so, but he was doing so for you and me. He was not suffering the shedding of his blood to pay for his own sins, but to make the payment to God for ours. It was the burden of our sins that he bore, the very sins by which we crowned him with the thorns and we beat upon him and we spit upon him and despised him. Those very sins he bore on his shoulder, the full burden of those sins and the full burden of the wrath of God against those sins that we deserve. He was walking this path that led to Calvary, this path of increasing and intensifying suffering for us. It was love that drove him on. Love for God, love for you, love for me. A love by which he was giving himself, sacrificing himself as the perfect atonement for our sins, as the perfect payment he would give himself finally to the cross. And there he would suffer the fullness of the shame and agony that we deserve. But by that act of love, he would cover every single one of our sins and blot them out of God's book for all eternity and earn for us a perfect righteousness and eternal life. 
after the soldiers had their way with Jesus, Pilate brought him forth unto the people. We read of that in John 18. Pilate brought forth Jesus before the people, the Jewish people, wearing that crown of thorns with the blood streaming down his face and the mock scepter in his hand. And Pilate said, Behold the man! And Pilate's hope was that the Jews would be satisfied with the obvious cruel abuse that had been heaped upon him. But they were not satisfied. They shouted out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Away with him! We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate said, But what evil has he done? What evil has he done? Emphasizing the great truth that he had done no evil. And yet the people said, If you let this man go, you are not a friend of Caesar. Whoever makes himself a king is against Caesar. And that was all it took for Pontius Pilate to shrivel up the last bit of courage he had to sit down in his judgment seat and to write the sentence that he should be crucified. And the Roman soldiers led him off down the roads of Jerusalem outside the gate to Golgotha and there pounded him to the cross where he gave his life for us. Because of the meek and obedient suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the very death of the cross, God has given him a glorious crown, a real crown. Because of his perfect obedience and accomplishment of all our salvation through his sufferings, God plucked off of his head that cruel crown of thorns and put upon his head the glorious crown of immortality and everlasting life. God took off of his shoulders that mock robe and he clothed him with the royal robes of kingship over an everlasting kingdom. God took away that mock reed scepter and put into his right hand the true golden scepter of absolute power and authority over all the universe, raising him up from the dead, carrying up into heaven and setting him at his right hand. He crowned him Lord of all. And the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King. Also Pontius Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and the Roman soldiers who crowned him in that mock coronation long ago, they will also have to stand before him, clothed in all of his glory and majesty, and will be forced to bow the knee and to confess, Jesus is king. And Jesus, who is king, 
will also crown us to be kings and queens with him. He will crown us too with a glorious crown. We who do not deserve it at all. We who are guilty of crucifying him. But for whom he was crucified, he will crown us with a glorious crown. In this life, he says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And therefore, because of the death of Christ for us, our light afflictions in this world are but for a moment, and they work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So that after we finish running our course and fighting the good fight, and we come to the end of our life on this earth, we should be able to say what Paul said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, and therefore there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. So hear this promise of Christ and have hope. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Revelation 3, verse 11. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we praise and we adore thee for the marvelous gift of thy own Son, who willingly gave himself to such scorn and suffering and took upon himself our sins that by his stripes we might be healed. Grant, Father, that our hearts might be filled with joy and thankfulness and hope as we see in Christ our righteousness and life. And may that humble us and fill us with a fervent desire to flee from all indwelling sins and to follow him who loved us so much. In Jesus' name.